Beautiful morning. I don't know if I'm a half a minute ahead of time, but I could just hardly wait. Let's stand and say this theme verse together. For thus saith the high and lofty one, who Thank you. Stay standing, please. I know you can't really read this. Can we still sing one stanza of this, please? Do, so, do, mi, do. What though the way be lonely? And dark the shadows fall. I know where, where it leadeth. My Father planned it all. I sing through the shade and the sunshine. I'll trust Him whatever befall. I sing for I cannot be silent. My Father planned it all. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your continued graciousness. The gifts, the daily gifts that are just part of our experience, we don't even recognize them. And Lord, forgive us, but we thank you for them anyway. And for the gifts that you do give us that are so precious, we bless you for them, Lord. And may you send us another blessing this period, just like you did the past period. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I didn't think that I had time to tell you a story because this is probably the busiest session we'll have the entire week, I don't know. But the story keeps pressing itself on me, especially since the last session we just had. So I'll tell you. It was in the spring of the year. I was in Romania for the first time a good number of years ago. And they had a busy schedule planned for us. I was at my brother's house, and we were going to eat supper at Phil Byler's house, a Christian aid uh, ministries worker in the, uh, near the Cam base in Sachava, Romania. We walked the streets, and when we got in front of Phil's house, there were three or four street teenagers that met my brother. And they recognized him. Several of them were fellows. One of them was a gypsy girl. 
I had never seen in my years in Washington, D.C. or in other places, I had never seen a girl as sad as that olive-skinned face I looked to right on the sidewalk in front of me. Her name was Doina, and there was a boy tight close against her on both sides. I didn't know what to make of it. I had just never seen an 18-year-old girl or 19-year-old girl look so terribly sad. No color in her eyes. Well, they were dark, but you know what I mean. No life. It was so... They were on their way to the street meeting, and this girl was going to go for the first time. The street meeting was held inside a home just down the street. We went inside for supper. When supper was over, I said to my brother, I'd like to go down to the street meeting because I could not forget that teenage girl. And she was going to her first street meeting. We came in there and Johnny Miller, who was living there at the time, was having the Bible study. And his son Franklin was translating, and his subject was on adultery. And my heart sank, because I knew that that girl must have must already be an adulteress, or living in horrible immorality, because she had no emotion left. It was gone. Her life was over at such a young age. It seemed like. And I said, oh, Lord, why couldn't it have been some different topic? Because now this is just thrown into her face. She'll never come back again. After the service, the little Bible study there with the street people, they serve a supper. My daughter was along, and I said to her, Please, please, get a cup of soup quick. Take it over there and put it in front of that girl. And she took the bowl of soup. She went over and she placed it in front of the girl. And that gypsy girl looked up at my daughter. And I saw a hint of a smile cross her face as though this is the first favor she has gotten in years. Just a bowl of soup. She needed shoes. I told Johnny when he came to say hi to us because we had just arrived the day before. I said, Johnny, there's something about that girl. Our hello was short. I said, why don't you go talk to her? So he went to talk to her. I don't know why she was so arrested. My attention, because I like to see youth be vibrant. And I like them to see them enjoy life. But when life is lived, when you've lived 70 years in 19, it's tragic. There's nothing left to live for anymore. And so he went to speak to her. She needed shoes. And their policy is that if you memorize Psalm 19, you can get a pair of shoes. 
And so she memorized Psalm 19 in the next week or two. And my brother took, and his wife took her to get a pair of shoes. If you look at Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And you, you go through that psalm, and you see what that girl learned. And on the way home after the purchase of the shoes, my brother said to her, Doina, wouldn't you like to become a Christian now? You've encountered the scriptures. Wouldn't you like to become a Christian now? She said, I can't. It was understandable. Because when you live without hope that long, it's very difficult to find hope. And they kept talking to her, wouldn't you? And finally, she said, I'd like to. And they began to pray. She said, confess your sins. And she began to confess her sins. And then she stopped short and said, I can't confess anymore. Why not? You need to just confess and then we'll keep going. No, she said, because this next one's so bad, I can't confess it. But finally, after much coaxing, she confessed it, worked her way through it. This was happening in the weeks following our trip. This didn't happen immediately. I had gone back to my classroom with a burden, and I told my 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, our class is going to pray for Doina. We want to see a change. There's a girl in Romania that's as lost as I've ever seen anybody be lost. That fall, I went back. Got there on a Saturday. Sunday morning, I was going to go to church with my brother. Somebody else was in the hall just by the front door ready to go to church too. So I didn't recognize her. She was holding a baby. And she was singing a song. It's not the deepest song around, but she was singing. I was in, and she was singing in English. I was in sin's prison, oh, so dark and cold. Just a lost sheep wandering from God's eternal fold. Then she saw I was coming down the hall. She turned and looked at me and flashed a radiant smile. And I saw it was Doina. And she had gotten her baby back that had been put away to somewhere else. And now she was headed back again. That baby girl, I'll not tell you the rest of the story till at the end. But that baby girl, a couple years later, was being taught by her mother to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's a picture of Maria. What I'd like to speak to you about today, I'm going to title The Casual Christian Music Compromise. We said yesterday that anything that affects the awareness of God is a moral issue. Anything that enhances or beclouds the spirit of man is a moral issue. Anything that affects or determines the eternal destiny of our spirit is a moral issue. And this morning in this particular subject, it's not an easy one. 
the casual Christian music compromise, but it's a necessary one. Because as you've already heard, we're living in a time of compromise. And we're being exposed to all sorts of Christian songs that are supposed to draw us to God. And so we sing, come to the waters. For those tears I died. And we have no clue that the writer of that song is Marcia Stevens. And Marcia Stevens was kind of well known in Christian circles for a while. But really became known as the mother of contemporary Christian music. Not Little Richard, who founded the rock world, but the mother of contemporary Christian music. And we probably don't understand that though she married and had two children already, she fell in love with a woman and divorced her husband and now started to serve Jesus in a new way and developed a ministry called Balm Ministries, B-A-L-M, Balm Ministries. And the Balm Ministries that she, uh, those letters actually stand for, Born Again Lesbian Music. I have a picture, and you can't see it from there. When I shared this in Haiti, somebody pulled up her picture and even though her song is in Heartland Hymns, I wouldn't dream of singing it. You heard about the ropes, didn't you? But this is what one Christian music uh, magazine says. The mother of contemporary Christian music continues to capture hearts for Jesus, argue interpretations of scripture, and debate the ethics and origins of homosexuality all you want. No one with sensitivity to things of the Spirit can deny that God is using Marcia Stevens to bring the love and mercy of Christ to people whom God has apparently not forgotten. Another Christian magazine calls her a Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, God-fearing lesbian Christian. End of quote. There are many others. Kirk Talley. Step into the water. He is here. Sang with the cathedrals. When he, when, he, when he came out and was honest about the fact that he's a homosexual, he had 17 engagements. This was about 10 years ago. On his schedule, four of those were a Nazarene church, one in a Baptist church, and five in a Methodist church. And he was able to keep all of his appointments. We're talking this morning about something that to me is heartbreaking. That's the picture that people are getting. And I have personal acquaintances who have now moved into lesbian relationships themselves. Now the scripture says very plainly, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro in fact, it's not the only time in Scripture that talks about the eyes of God. There are at least 22 other references that speak about the eyes of the Lord. But I don't think you read very often about God running in the Scripture. 
Because we see God is a very orderly God and he just moves step by step. But here we have the eyes of the Lord running to and fro. And you say, why would God's eyes be running? Eyes are important. You know why? Because eyes are what register things when there's light. And eyes are what can't see when it's dark. We are the people of light. And you can read it in Luke. You can read it in many other portions of Scripture. Luke 11, 33 to 36. I won't take time to turn there. But the Scriptures over and over again speak of light and darkness. Light and darkness. And bless God, we are the people of light. Eyes are so important. A mother holds her little baby. She looks into those eyes of the baby. The baby's eyes, the first couple days, I'm told, can't even really see that overly clearly. But the baby listens to the voice. It's the voice the baby's been hearing for a long time. And her eyes will develop. And the mother's eyes are down. The baby's eyes are up. The two are meeting. And then you get to be a 10-year-old boy. And you discover that that mother's eyes are still focused on you. And uh, they also have the capacity of being instructional. My mother's eyes were a bit penetrating. We'd have company on a Sunday dinner for church. And if the drumsticks happened to the chicken, fried chicken, mom was extra good with that, would come to my plate before it went to some of the company. And I'd take three drumsticks. I wouldn't dare look at my mother's eyes. (laughs) Because she had instructional eyes. And and I knew that sometime along the line, before the day is over, I'll find out that you will never do that again in front of company. Well, I don't remember doing it exactly, actually, but And then you add another 10, 12 years to that. And then there's a set of eyes. Two pairs of eyes. That have a way of looking at each other. And just enjoying it. But we have more than a baby's eyes. The instructional eyes of a mother. Or the eyes of people who are courting each other. We have the eyes of God here. Who are running. And they're running to and fro throughout the earth. Because God would like to show himself strong. On behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. Whose heart is perfect toward him. Well that's a tremendous challenge. That's a tremendous responsibility. Because we live in a time, and I think Bob Jones I was very right when he said that when error creeps into the Christian church, it is going to creep into it through the field of evangelism. People will do anything to get people saved. And so people want to build bridges. So here are the people, here's the Christian culture. And they build a bridge because they want, now they have eyes that are looking down here and they, and they're seeing the needs that is down here 
And they have eyes that are looking up here and saying, we want to serve God. And so they build this bridge and they say, in order to relate, if we want to relate to this culture, we're going to have to use music that they understand. We're going to have to use music they can appreciate. If you have any questions about that, you can read, you can go to page 279 in the Purpose Live and Drive uh, uh, Life by Rick Warren. Page 279, 280, 283, 284, 285. You can look at those pages and you will see that if you're going with a man who has country music going in his vehicle, then you better put the gospel message into country music because he already appreciates that genre of music. So then you put the Christian words in that kind of music and you'll draw him, you'll attract him. If he's a man who's into heavy metal, then you will use a heavy metal kind of music to attract him because music itself is our moral, is their thought. And so just use what is already attractive to him and this way you can build a bridge. Now, I can tell this audience immediately that the traffic that was intended to come across the bridge up here has been disappointingly few. But the traffic that has gone from here down to the bottom of culture has been amazingly many. It's been going the wrong way. Now there are of course in our circles people who say well we wouldn't listen to this stuff. If we would put CCM belief here. And so we're up here. Well, we wouldn't listen to this stuff down here especially. And maybe not. Maybe we better put the CCM down here a little further. And we'll just make this, you know, little edgy things. Just kind of a compromise things. So we build a bridge here. We're going to stay a cappella with our singing. But we'll build a little bridge because we can learn some things here in our listening. And what we don't realize is the bridge doesn't stop here. We have just built an extension to a bridge that leads down here. A girl came to me years ago and said, for the very first time, our pastor is allowing us to use a guitar at the reception. For the very first time. And she was very excited about it. I had a friend who was in my music class when I just taught music Fridays and not other days of the week, who later moved out of state, lived a very, became involved in a very godless style of living, died early 20s. His funeral was in the same church, and I wanted a recording of it because he was my friend. During the funeral, a band had played, and at the conclusion, the bishop thanked the band for the music they provided at the funeral at this church. I took my family to listen to a chorus. We had friends, and we traveled about 100 miles to listen to this chorus, and we had friends that were singing the chorus. It was an a cappella chorus. It was a good chorus. Nothing wrong with it. When we drove into the churchyard, the church sign said that this is a conservative Mennonite church. That's what it said on the sign. 
However, the program was not given in the sanctuary. The program was given in another part of the church, the fellowship hall or somewhere like that. And I had read in one of Dan Lucarini's books that some conservative churches, when they put the drum set up, they put a big piece of plastic, like a polycarbonate, an eight by, by a four by eight sheet in front of the drums to, you know, make it more conservative. So it doesn't, doesn't affect the crowd quite as much. So after the program, I took a little tour through the church and I came still remembering that the sign says Conservative Mennonite Church and I came to the sanctuary and here was the drum set. And I guess the reason I could tell it was a conservative church is because there was a piece of polycarbonate in front of it. I was in Missouri some years ago and I came past a church where the sign was changed, the local people told me between the church where I spoke and the home where I stayed, I always passed this church. And they said, the sign has been changed, the denominational name has been taken off. And so now, you know, this opens the thing up. And on Saturday after Saturday noon, when I went past there, I thought, you know, this is going to be interesting. I'm going to stop in because I saw some cars there. I'd like to see that church because I suspicioned a few changes that had come with the compromise. Now, they, their, their goal was to win people to Christ. That's their goal. And I bless God for every person that's won to Christ in spite of what methods may have been employed. But I don't think it's right for us to intentionally employ such methods to try to win people to Christ when they will be won to the medium instead of to the message. I stopped in, the front doors were locked, I went to the side door, and uh, a man met me there. He was very pleased and happy with his church. He said, we have 1,300 people come, and I couldn't believe it. 1,300 people in rural Missouri come to this church? Well, he said, we used to be a traditional church, but we aren't anymore. We, are, we used to have a traditional and, a, and, a, and one contemporary service, but now we have both. Just both of them are contemporary service. We have a bus ministry. We bring a lot of people in. There's not so many older people here, but there's a lot of younger people and a lot of children. In fact, he said, I'm a teacher here. Well, that was interesting to me. And so we conversed a bit. He said, would you like to see the sanctuary? And I said, yes, I would. And so I found exactly what I expected. There were no pews, only chairs. There was no pulpit, only a stand. And there were no hymn books anywhere that I could see. Only, they only used projection of the simple choruses and things that these people sang. Oh, yes, what do you teach? Oh, he said, I teach the drumming classes. Oh, that's how he accommodated Sunday school. Well, It would have been unique if it hadn't been so sad. One of the boys who used to go to one of the secular rock concerts, I talked with him. He'd become a Christian. He joined the Anabaptist people. He's not from Anabaptist background. He worked for a Pentecostal boss. And uh, he said to his boss, 
one day when his boss was playing the radio or playing a recording of some sort, he said, why are you playing Metallica? Because after all, he was the leader. Why are you playing Metallica? And he said, I'm not playing Metallica. He was offended. Well, this boy knew very well what Metallica was like. And he knew very well what these concerts and what goes on at these concerts and the immorality that accompanies these concerts. And so when you have the same kind of sound at a Christian concert, what do you think happens as far as the moral issue goes? He said, I was not playing Metallica. I was playing Stephen Annie Chapman music. But if, I don't know where my copy is right now, but I have had a list of a lot of contemporary artists who have patterned their music after secular artists. And so when they do that, what happens? What happens on this bridge? Well, here's one, what one person named Megan said. She said, I, she had a little article on, I don't know, Facebook or where, titled Sniffing Glue. She said, I have given up on Christianity. CCM gave me a taste for and into the world's rock. She claims that CCM started her on a journey away from God. I knew I had been cheated by Christian rock. This was crack, what she has now, before she was just sniffing glue. Here's a, and when she put this out, she got all kinds of responses from people to say that I've crossed the bridge and I'm pleased. I'm happy to have done it. Here's what one of the responses were to her letter or to her writing. The popular Christian music scene was very formative in our generation, believers and non-believers. And you really hit the nail on the head about mainstream evangelism Losing a lot of authenticity in its quest to be cool. Chuck wrote this. How does anybody believe that putting Jesus in a package that is cool and hip could possibly be intellectually honest? As a generation who did that in the name of evangelism is found out, the spiritual harvest is being won, and it's not Christians who are winning it. End of quote. Here's another response to her blog that she's now left uh, Christianity because she enjoys what she found. And this person writes, I really enjoyed this. Weirdly, like reading my own memoirs. Funny thing. The Christian's acts imitation of secular artists, DC's oft expressed admiration of U2's music, motivated me to give U2 a listen. And discovered that they were actually better. So those early naysayers were correct in warning of the slippery slope of so-called Christian rock. And I'm just happy and grateful I went down that slope. End of quote. That's one thing. It's another thing to have a boy that was your friend. You sang together in chorus. 
You prayed together. You spent Sunday afternoons together. And he struggles and struggles both with morality and music. And he's honest about it. And he tries to find freedom from it. And then he encounters a girl that's just lovely. She's just lovely. And he told me, I don't deserve a wonderful girl like she is. They dated, became engaged, got married, had children. But the lure of this slope was still somehow not taken care of. So, one day he comes to his own house with another woman. His wife opens the door and he said, pack my bags, I'm leaving with her. Leaving his little girls inside. Last I heard, my friend lives in Las Vegas. We went to church together. Breaks my heart. I wish that was the only case. I could tell you more. It's a tragedy. You see, the sound that those people embrace is the same sound in secular music. Maybe it's toned down some. But the music itself, in that beat music says, you can do your own thing. You don't have to follow the rules. You can be your own boss. And so while the words are trying to point you to Christ, the sound is saying, it's up to you. You get to decide. And the question you and I can legitimately raise is, are we to be the boss of our own life? Should we really be that? Because we know already. And I've heard all kinds of defenses, of course. Why the scripture doesn't say a thing against it, does it? You can't read anywhere in the Bible about that kind of music. It's wrong, can you? Well, there's something we need to understand about scripture. The lists in scripture are representative, not exhaustive. Because if the scripture would point out internet pornography, moshing, stage diving, all kinds of things that are happening, even necking and all kinds of things like that. If the lists in scripture would, if it would have to be in scripture for every culture around this entire globe, for every time period, as tall as this ceiling is, there still wouldn't be room for the Bible between your knees and the ceiling. So, instead, the scripture has a tremendous, has a tremendous way of approaching these things. For example, you have got quite a list in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. And it tells you about the associations of evil and immorality and fornication. It mentions a whole bunch of things. But then God in his wisdom knew that you have to have a Bible that you can carry. A Bible that's your size. And he just covers all the associations with three simple words. And such like. For every culture. 
The immature, they look for an exact catalog of permissions or prohibitions. But the mature, they see the principle. And they understand it. And they understand the power that comes through exposure. What seems to be innocent, they understand that that exposure, they, they, they understand that there's such a thing as sensory fatigue. Repeated exposure to any stimulant will eventually lead to tolerance, dissatisfaction, and burnout. And so when they use the praise and worship music in, in churches today, and, and it's the same thing over and over and over again, finally it becomes wearisome because it's the same thing. And so they make it heavier. They make it more appealing. They make it stronger. And so the product then becomes appealing to the, the first product becomes unappealing to the user. And it has to be replaced by something that's more capable of exciting his dull receptors. How opposite it is for God's people who have perfect hearts. You say, how long has this been around? I think CCM started a long, long time ago. Do you remember when Moses and his assistants were up on the mountain for 40 days, and then they came down off the mountain? And when they were coming down off the mountain, his assistant said to Moses, I hear the noise of war in the camp. Something to that effect. And Moses said, that's not the noise of war. It's the noise of them that sing. It's not the noise of those who are overcome or being overcome. It's not them. It's the noise of them to sing. And Moses knew what is going to accompany that. Moses knew full well that there's going to be immorality. There's going to be worship of wrong things. Less than 35 miles from our house when we lived in Pennsylvania. There was a weekend when they had a Bible conference where they had Bible preaching, but they employed this kind of music. And the local Christians told me later, there were 23 girls who gave birth to babies nine months later. 23 teenage girls, a youth, single girls who had been at that meeting. Why? Because there is, the inhibitions are lost. And it was a spiritual meeting, and the word of God was preached. But nobody understood the power of the music. And that music itself communicates powerfully. But Moses understood it. He knew that those people had made themselves naked, and they were dancing around that golden calf. And that's why he threw those tablets of stone down. But his brother, who was a leader while he had been gone, had announced this. This is what he announced. You can read it in Exodus 32, verse 5. He had announced that tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. That's where CCM started. Because they had chaotic calf music right there in Exodus chapter 32. It was a sound of chaos. He could hear it by the very sound. And yet it was announced as being a feast to the Lord. 
You know the biggest problem with this kind of music? Someone has put it this way. Error nurtured in the bosom of the church and subtly detracting from the glory of Christ always poses a graver threat to the truth than that teaching which blatantly assails this person. That's a mouthful. Maybe it doesn't make sense. The biggest problem with that kind of music is what it does to Jesus. It makes him a boogie-woogie Jesus. It makes him the way, the truth, and the life of the party. It makes him a, a rebellious Jesus who, who counters the culture of the time. And they make Jesus who he isn't. They make him a Tobiah in the temple. As you read in Nehemiah 12. That's the most tragic thing. More than anything else. Is just what it pictures Jesus to be. Isaiah 53. Read it. And when you read Isaiah. You take Dallas Holmes old song. Rise again. And you see the militancy in that song. I'm going to beat you. You can, do, you can beat me. Do whatever you want me to do. I'm just going to rise again. No. You read Isaiah 53. And you'll see how Jesus responded to his death. You see the brokenness. And folks, the level of your personal brokenness will determine the distance of your ministry. The humility that you have, the level of your personal brokenness will determine the distance of your ministry. And I see a power force here in front of me this morning that to me is thrilling. And I just can't let you go the way of some of these other people who've been my friends. I could name some that some of you would know. We know very well that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. What does the Bible say? The entrance of thy word giveth light. It giveth understanding. And so, what does God want to do? He wants to give us a perfect heart. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Jesus said that in John 17, where you were earlier today. Someone puts it this way. Consistent rejection of truth warps one's ability to see right from wrong. Another person the plain fact is the church has lost the very reason for its existence if it pursues, pursues a policy of conformity to the world. To align the church to the world in the name of aligning it to reality is the quickest way for suicide for a church. Conforming to God's standard of right may be painful in an age of disobedience. But that pain is never as severe as the consequences of continued violation. Must the Christian church stoop to serving garbage? Should we not present our message as a feast on clean linens, the finest china, the freshest flowers, and with platters of quality food that truly satisfy? 
And God has given our circles the beautiful gift of four-part a cappella singing. And I've watched the churches who've decided to change that. And it's been tragic to see what has happened. Their gift of song has been replaced by the things that are projected in front and they sing only the melody and the melody, as you heard yesterday, is very important and critical. But something beautiful is lost. And finally, even the singing of the melody doesn't go very well for them. And I just wish that somehow we could understand that off that we would learn to hear. We've got two ears, don't we? We would learn to hear warnings. Often what begins in curiosity ends in satanic control. And that has to do with music. We could go back and and say, well, what is the message? What is the message that we have with the eyes of the Lord? Well, you'll find the message in Second Chronicles. The man's called Asa. And Asa was a man after God's own heart. You know, maybe you should just turn to it. Second Chronicles chapter 14. His father Abijah died. And they needed a new king. Which one of the boys is going to be king? Because Asa had 21 brothers and 16 sisters. That's a sizable family. And so which one's going to be king? Verse 2. It was in verse 1 it says that Asa, his son, reigned in his stead. Verse 2 said, And Asa did that which was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. For he took away the altars of the strange gods and the high places, and brake down the images, and cut down the groves, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord God of their fathers, and to do the law and the commandment. And then, if you would keep on reading, you discover that there's a huge host of enemy host that comes against him. With a million people. A thousand thousand is a million. And Asa only had 580,000 plus a number of chariots. His total, I think, was his total between the 300,000, 280,000, 580,000 total. There was no way in the world he could win over that. You know what Asa did? He fell on his face he cried out to God. He begged God. In verse 11, read it with me. And Asa cried the Lord his God and said, Lord, it is nothing with thee to help, whether with many or with them that have no power. Help us, O God, our Lord, our Lord, O Lord, our God, for we rest on thee. And in thy name we go against this multitude. O Lord, thou art our God. Let not man prevail against thee. And then verse 12 says, so the Lord smote them. What a humble prayer. And you read chapter 15, you're just amazed at the reign of Asa. What a tremendous king he was. In verse 15 of chapter 15, And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart, and sought him with their whole desire, and he was found of them, and the Lord gave them rest round about. And then Asa encountered a problem, which is the most serious problem we can find. It's the hardest one to deal with, and that's one in the family. Some people think it was his grandmother. Here it calls him his mother. Was still queen from the previous reign. 
and she still had some idols. And Asa removed her. It's hard to deal with it when it's right in the family. When it's a brother, when it's a sister, it's really hard to work with it. We, we, we love them, and yet because we love them, we do what Asa did. He removed her from being queen. He took her idols. He stamped it. He crushed it. He put it, he put it in the brook Kidron. And then he brought some of his things, as well as his father's things, and he placed them in the temple for God's use. And I wish that the chapter would end with these words, and Asa died and slept with his fathers. But that's not how the chapter ends. There's a chapter 16. And here they build a city in northern, north of Judah, in the northern part of Israel, and if you study the Mediterranean and see where the European continent is, where Asian continent, where the African continent is, then you realize that that coming down around the Mediterranean Sea was a very important trade route. And so the northern Israel, they built a city that would shut off the trade and would ruin the economy of Judah. And he, he, that just, he can't have it. So what did he do? He went to the temple. He borrowed, he borrowed the silver and gold that his father had committed to the temple and that he had committed to the temple, and he sent it down to the king of Syria. Why? Because Syria was on the north end. And he said, Syria, you come help me fight. And if you fight from the north and we fight from the south, we can get them to quit building that city. Can you imagine the response? Can you imagine the response of the Syrian king when he saw this caravan, this camel train coming, and suddenly he discovers what they're about? What are they doing? What are they here for? What they are here. They're bringing gold. They're bringing silver. It's coming from Judah. They want you to come help fight. I can see the king lose his regal demeanor. And slap his knees and say, I can't believe it. I'll take all that gold. We'll go help fight. This is going to help our economy like nothing has happened for years. And to think that's God's people that's asking us to do it. Fight they did. And Asa, and they won and they quit building the city. And Asa said, works. You can take godliness and you can take rock rhythm. You can put the two together and you'll win people. And they'll come across the bridge this way. No. There was a prophet who knew what all was going on. And that prophet approached him and he said, Asa, because thou hast relied on the king of Syria and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubims a huge host with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet because thou didst rely on the Lord, he delivered them into thine hand. There's a strong possibility that you never knew the context of this verse. But here it is. The very next thing the prophet said was, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God wanted to show himself strong. 
God wanted them to understand that when you have a storm that's so big you know you can't handle it, there's a God in heaven who has a hand and arm that will reach all the way down to you. I wonder how many times you and I have been overcome by temptation just because we didn't reach for that arm and say, Lord, you can help me. And you will help me. And he will help us. And I think this is the tragedy of the music movement in our time. Because we've, we've ended up with a shallow experience. You, we talked about the balances in music. I was speaking this subject in Craig, Colorado a number of years ago. And on Saturday night, after I just finished speaking about this topic right here, a girl came up to me and waited till everybody else was gone. And she said, I come. She came from a non-Anabaptist home. My sister and I both do. My parents are strong. My mother especially is a very strong Pentecostal. And she said, we just... She said, I love my mother. I go back to visit. But I, I'm so scared when I go back because I can't even sit with her in church. Because I know that everybody knows that we've left that. And they'll bring us up to the front. They'll take me out of my seat. They'll bring me to the front and just make me speak in tongues. And make me get all shook up with the Lord. But she said, my brother operates the sound equipment. He's up there on top. And so I go up there and uh, I, I sat beside him during church. And his brother's smiling away. Her brother's smiling away. He likes his job there with the sound system. Every drum on the stage had a separate mic, he told her. And the people were beginning to, the service was starting now, and the people were beginning to cry out and asking the Holy Spirit to come down on them. And it seemed like he was, they were a little slow in coming. The Spirit was slow in arriving. And so he said to her, uh, so he said to her, his sister, he said, watch this. It'll take about 38 seconds. And so he began to turn certain knobs and turn them some more. And pretty soon the people were praising God and speaking in tongues and glorifying God because the Spirit of God had come down. And he said to his sister, now watch this. And so then he turned the knobs back off and the thing started to fade away. And the people were, they were, they were losing what they had just had a moment before. He said, I'm going to have to start this back up quick. I, you know, he didn't want to lose his job. So I mean, he so he quick he turned it back up and 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 oh the people were praising God and going for it. Thanks to the gentleman in the sound room, folks. I said it yesterday. I say it today again. The Holy Spirit is getting credit for a lot of things he's not responsible for in this day. That's too obvious. God is looking for somebody whose heart is perfect toward him. I took one of the books that's been circulating in our circles a lot, some of our circles a lot. I took a look through it, and I... Well, some of the, this particular group was the group that I was spoke about one time. It's the Oak Ridge Boys. Us older fellows still remember it. They've just been admitted to the Country Hall of Fame in the recent years 
but they're such an old group, nobody here would even think of listening to them. But I had a call from somebody who said the Oak Ridge, well, actually, I was speaking on a subject one time, and I, I mentioned the Oak Ridge Boys as a gospel quartet that has gone secular. They've crossed the bridge. And uh, after the service was over, I went to the back, and everybody had left except the group of young people. And they were in a circle, and they were having a real discussion uh, about things until I got close, and then everything got quiet. And I thought, oh, no. So then one boy very bravely stepped out, and he said, uh, uh, we followed everything you said till you said Oak Ridge. But once you said Oak Ridge, we couldn't listen to you anymore. Well, that's interesting. He said, the Oak Ridge don't have that rock beat. <laughs> I said, well, how stupid do you think I am? I'm not going to be using groups that are just close. And I, I don't m mention any Mennonite groups, who've, who, even acapella groups, that have adopted the syncopated rock rhythm as well. I don't mention that by name. Because I think fathers and mothers and pastors should be responsible for what takes place in their homes and in their churches. And I can mention a few names and miss many more. But there's a principle here. But I had mentioned Oak Ridge. And the reason I discovered it, I said, well, 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 they said, well, maybe, maybe they have a little bit of soft rock. <laughs> well, the Oak Ridge were going in a direction. And I could tell you stories about that, but... And I could tell you about the, the more recent, I'm going to show you pictures of them with Santa Claus, all sorts of clipping. I could show you, well, this is a picture of them. I, that might even tell you something about them, doesn't it? If it's a billboard, maybe you would like to see the uh, other side. <laughs> maybe not. They had gone, this is country music now. So they're, they're, it's innocent, folks. Country, I started studying country music because somebody requested it. I quit because I didn't want to pollute my mind. So here's one of the, the, the songs out of this country music by this gospel quartet. I mean, they still sing gospel occasionally, but they sing a lot of other things. It's titled, Ain't No Cure for Rock and Roll. I was still a boy when it happened to me. I started shaking uncontrollably. Doctor came and shook his head and mama cried when the doctor said you can hear the you can see the look on the poor boy's face. He's been took with a terminal case. Ain't a prayer, no there ain't no hope. You can hear the beat on the seth on my stethoscope. Oh well it's rock and roll, rock and roll. Can't be stopped out of control. It's got his body and it's after his soul. Ain't no cure for rock and roll. That's just the first stanza of it. And so in one of our Christian schools. One of the, uh, they had a prayer time together and one of the uh, students said, uh, uh, let's pray for this group because they pass out Bibles in the concerts and, and we, we really want to pray that God would bless their work. Well, maybe uh, you'd like to see that billboard. By the way, all four of those fellows are fellows. In case you wonder, here's the same four fellows. Here's one of their songs. The hair is loud, long and the screams are loud and clear. The clothes are tight, earrings dangling from their ears. No matter how we look, we'll always praise his name. And if you believe, you've got to do the same. Uh-oh, I don't see anybody that looks like that. But I trust you much further. And so I mentioned DC Talk. And Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, 
Here's a man who spoke against this kind of music for a long time. I have his book on the shelf at home. A new song, it's titled. But in his older years, he decided, after his daughter was involved in the CCM movement, in his older years, he decided that uh, just for the kicks of it, he didn't tell his wife, he's going to produce heavy metal music across the bridge himself. He had often spoken against it. The list goes on and on. You find these songs, I think I counted a hundred of them in the book Faith and Praise by these authors. Amy Grant, many others. I won't show you their pictures. Michael W. Smith, Rock Beat, dances with whoever comes in front of the stage. Cross the bridge. Amy divorced her husband. Her song, Baby Baby, was about her baby. Went to the tops of Christian charts, went to the tops of Billboard. And John W. Steele from Contemporary Christian Music Magazine said, Ah, oh, we've finally accomplished what we've tried for 30 years to do. Get a song that goes to the top of both charts. Crossover music. I have the article when she said, As a 20-year-old, I have just crossed into a music. She grew up in an a cappella singing church. In order to sing what she wanted to sing, she had to leave that church, and she left it because she wanted to go to a church where she could go barefoot and where she could carry a guitar there. What does the Bible say? Does the fountain send forth the same place, sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries and the vine fig? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. God knows I don't. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. This is the most sobering. You can put it in your notes, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. This is the most sobering scripture of all. But don't kid yourself. The Bible is practical today. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. No self-transformation will ever make a Christian out of you. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. But the most sobering thing is the next part. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. I love this scripture. Although I use the word songs here because the Bible says things, and I don't think it's an injustice to say, whatsoever songs are true, whatsoever songs are honest, whatsoever songs are just, Whatsoever songs are pure, whatsoever songs are lovely, but one day it struck me what the next part says. Whatsoever songs are of good report. And to use songs that still have the connotation, of the existing connotation of evil. Now some people associate things with Luther and Wesley, and they say they used, folks, that's not true if you do some research. 
It's time to close. And I hate to leave you with a dark picture like I've just painted. Except that sitting in front of me this noon, I see a lot of hope. For young people who are inside going to ponder these things, you may feel like reacting, but you're going to ponder them a while. And when somebody turns to that song in Heartland Hymns, you're not going to sing it. And if they use that, if, if somebody turns to that song in Faith and Praise, you're not going to sing it. This is Maria. Maria's a teenager now. A man who killed his wife started coming to church and became very spiritual after he got out of prison. And he bewitched Doina and they eloped and got married. Doina has a very hard life. She's no longer living for the Lord. She was a radiant Christian the last time I saw her. This girl has already had her first baby as a teenager. And she's repeating the same process of her mother. Why? It's one of the saddest stories I know. And if I knew that 135 prayers uttered for Doina and for Maria would help bring Doina back and Maria back, then it would have been worth sharing her story with you. Because God is still looking for perfect hearts. And he's finding some of them. He needs more. God bless you.